If you would, pray with me one more time as we begin. Father, thank you for this morning. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the truth that Jesus paid it all. We recognize that every single one of us is a sinner desperately in need of your grace. And so we thank you for the gift of Christ. We pray that we would see him clearly uh, in our need for him in our own lives uh, as we think about David's desperate need for Jesus as well. We pray it all in his name. Amen. Behind every great man is a great woman. Behind every great leader is a great team, right? Tom Brady did not win the Super Bowl by himself. It was the Bucks, not just him, right? We use phrases like that to communicate the point that there is no such thing as a self-made man, right? Behind every single successful person that you meet, there's always someone, usually a group of someones, who have helped this person become the person that they are today. We know that that's true, and yet, at times, we can find it really easy to look at celebrities, at athletes, at CEOs, at successful businessmen, and think that somehow they got there all by themselves. And the truth is, we know they didn't. Interestingly, this phenomenon actually grows when it comes to characters in the Bible. Right? You think of people like Joseph, Ruth, David, Daniel, Esther, Mary, Paul. It's easy to, to look at their lives and to simply marvel at their faithfulness, at their perseverance, at their giftedness, at their boldness, at their willingness to suffer for the sake of their faith, and to think that the point of their stories and the point of their lives is simply that we need to be like them. We're doing the exact same thing. We're, we're looking at these folks and thinking somehow who they are and what they were was all because of themselves. But the reality we know from Scripture is that they were only able to do any of those things by God's grace. Right Behind and before every great man or woman of the faith is the great and gracious God of the universe. And that's really what I want us to see this morning as we consider this picture of David that we find in 2 Samuel chapter 5. So, so go ahead and turn, if you're not already there, to 2 Samuel chapter 5. And as you do, let me just give a little bit of background. As we're really kind of parachuting in, to what is the center of First and Second Samuel. So First and Second Samuel were really one book, right? They were separated because of the length. They couldn't all fit on one scroll, so there's two books. So the, the books of Samuel really are about one thing. They have one driving theme, and that theme is kingship. And in the books, there's really one primary figure, David. And, and the question that dominates these books for, for most of the time, is the question, when will David become king? And if you're familiar with the story, as you read, especially in 1 Samuel, it seems like it's never going to happen. 
I just finished reading Oliver Twist. I don't know how many of you have read that book, but in the beginning of the book, it just seems like thing after thing after thing after thing keeps happening to Oliver. And you're reading and you're just getting to the point where you're throwing your hands up going, like, is anything good ever going to happen to this poor kid? Right? And that's really what, what it feels like when you read through 1 Samuel. You're looking at David's life going, like, is anything good ever going to happen for David? David's chosen by God an anointed king as a teenager. We think somewhere between the ages of 12 and 15. He becomes this great general in the Israelite army. We remember him fighting Goliath, right? With his sling and stones, he takes down the Philistine giant. But through all that, David's not king. Saul is. And as soon as Saul realizes that David is a threat to his throne, Saul makes it the ambition of his life to put David to death. And so the second half of 1 Samuel is really the story of David running for his life. David manages to evade Saul over and over and over and over again. And eventually, as 1 Samuel ends, Saul is killed in battle. And we think, finally, David's going to become king. But then, as 2 Samuel begins, we find out that David only becomes king of Judah and not all of Israel. Instead of becoming king of the nation, the northern tribes of Israel decide that they're going to set up Saul's son instead of David, even though they know David is supposed to be king. And so they set up Ishbosheth in David's place. And so David has to wait another seven and a half years, enduring now not running for his life, but fighting a civil war, waiting for God to fulfill his promise to make him king. Eventually, Ishbosheth, it's hard to say, Ishbosheth was murdered, and finally Israel decides, okay, now we'll make David king. And that's where our story picks up this morning. And so let's, let's look together at 2 Samuel chapter 5. Then, so this is after Ishbosheth is murdered and buried, then All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking, David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion. That is the city of David. And David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the millow inward. And David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David, and cedar trees also, carpenters and masons who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and that 
he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron. And more sons and daughters were born to David. And these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Eliad, Eliada, and Eliphalet. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the, Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal-perazim. And David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has burst through my enemies before me like a bursting flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal-perazim. And the Philistines left their idols there. And David and his men carried them away. And the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, You shall not go up. Go around to their rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. In this chapter, the, the author of 2 Samuel is announcing, if you will, the beginning of David's reign as king. And in doing so, he's picking and choosing events from David's reign. This is not necessarily a chronological account. He's picking certain things from David's reign in order to put together a, a collage of sorts, if you will, to, to show us as we step back from it this picture of what David's reign as king was like. And so this morning, what I want us to do is to take a look at this picture, but to do it with 3D glasses on. Okay? So for those of you who remember, before they changed them, 3D glasses used to have a red lens, and they used to have a blue lens, right? And when you looked at the TV or the movie screen, with one eye closed, you saw one thing. When you did it with the other eye, you saw something different. It wasn't until you opened both eyes that you could actually see the image as it was meant to be seen in 3D, to see all its contours, to see everything that you're supposed to see about it. Well, I think in order to truly see this picture that the author of 2 Samuel is painting, we have to do the same thing. We have to put on two lenses, one with an eye to David, and what David is doing, but the other with an eye to God and what God is doing. Because when we look at this picture, it's easy to think, oh, look at how great David was. But really what we're supposed to say is, look at how great David was because of how great God is. And that's really what I want us to see this morning. And so we're going to put on our 3D glasses and we're going to walk through the text. I've got four, four points for us this morning. The first is this. David was patient because God is faithful. David was patient because God is faithful. We see this in verses 1 through 5. I'm not going to read them again, but I, I do want to just 
direct your eyes to verse 4. David was 30 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 40 years at Hebron. He reigned over Judah seven years and six months. At Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. David was patient, right? David had been anointed king by the prophet Samuel somewhere between 20 and 25 years before the events described here even took place. He was anointed as a teen, and now he's 37 and a half years old. To say that David was patient is an understatement. The entirety of David's adult life up to this point had been an exercise in patience, and not just patience, but patient endurance in the face of incredible hostility and adversity. He'd spent the first three years of his life running for King Saul, who was bent on putting him to death, though David had done nothing to Saul but good. And he'd patiently endured this horrifying game of hide-and-seek, constantly fearing for his life, running, hiding in caves, while refusing to take matters into his own hand, even though he had multiple opportunities to put Saul to death. And then even after Saul's death, David waited patiently for another seven and a half years, enduring a civil war, just waiting for the tribes of Israel to finally put down their swords and their spears and acknowledge that he was their true king. He did that for seven and a half years, knowing that they knew already that he was supposed to be their king. I mean, look there at verse 2. You just hear the irony in their words. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us out and brought in Israel, led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, in times past, yeah, like 20 years ago, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. They knew, and yet they continued to pursue David, trying to take the kingdom for themselves. So when we read these verses, we're intended to see David's patience. The reason that those verses at the end there, verses 4 and 5, are there are to remind us that David was incredibly patient. But that's not the only thing we're intended to see. We're also intended to see that God is faithful. Again, we see it clearly in verses 2 and 3. God said... You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. And then what happened? It took a while, but all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel, exactly as God had promised. David was able to patiently endure years and years of running and waiting because he knew that God was faithful and he believed that God would keep his word. Just listen. I think it, you, you don't see it quite as clearly here as you do in the life of David, but listen, listen to David's words at one point. David's on the run. He and one of his soldiers, Abishai, they come into Saul's camp late at night. David is standing at the head of Saul, weapon in hand, He could kill him if he wanted to. Abishai is standing there saying, kill him. Kill him now. You have the chance to become king. Kill him. And here's what David says. 
David says, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. David walked away. David was convinced that God was faithful, that God was going to keep his promise. And so David didn't need to make himself king. He didn't need to take matters into his own hands. No, God would do it in his own timing. So so God's faithfulness was the fuel that sustained David's patient endurance. Even in the face of incredible adversity, he was able to wait for over 20 years to become king because he knew that God was faithful. So I was about eight years old at one point when I was eight years old. Uh, Everyone was eight years old at some point. Uh, My mom and I and my dad, for some reason, were in a car dealership. I think they were buying a car. And little eight-year-old me, I'm looking around, I'm fascinated by the cars, and I see these two convertibles, right? There's a red convertible, and there's a white convertible. And I say to my mom, I make this promise to my mom, Mom, when I grow up, I'm going to be a famous scientist, and I'm going to buy you that white convertible, and I'm going to drive the red convertible, right? I'm now on the verge of 39. Mom still does not have that convertible. Since then, my mom has bought a number of cars, right? My mom did not patiently wait for me to deliver on my promise because she knew that I was not probably going to be faithful to that promise. And so she went ahead and took matters into her own hands. She's not been carless for the last 20 or 31 years, right? No, she's, she's had a car. She didn't trust that I was going to keep my promise. And she had every reason not to trust that I was going to keep my promise. But David, David was able to wait these 20, 25 years because he had every reason in the world to trust that God was going to be faithful to his promise. Over and over and over again, he saw the faithfulness of God in the history of Israel and even in his own life. And and David's experience is not unique, right? Waiting patiently for God to fulfill his promises has been the calling of every one of his people throughout history. And it continues to be the calling of his people today, of of you and and me. Christian, the, the call to follow Christ is a call to patiently wait, often in the face of opposition and adversity. Right? It's a call to patient endurance. And and let's just be honest, it certainly seems at least that opposition and adversity are only going to increase for us in the years ahead, even here in America, even in Atlanta, in the buckle of the Bible Belt. But, praise God, we have every reason to patiently endure whatever trials we may face now, whatever trials we may face in the years ahead, because we're waiting for God to fulfill His promises. And we're waiting for God to fulfill far greater promises than the ones he made to David. We're awaiting the consummation of a kingdom far greater than David's. We're waiting for the whole world to bow their knee to a greater king, to King Jesus. And not only that, we can wait patiently because we've got even greater evidence of God's faithfulness than David had. 
The whole Bible is a testimony to the faithfulness of God. We have the testimony of the Old Testament, the New Testament, page after page after page after page of promises made and promises kept. We also have the testimony of church history, the testimony of Christ's faithfulness to the promise that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. They haven't yet, and they never will. And we have the testimony of one another to the faithfulness of God in our own lives. As we share our lives and as we share our stories with one another, we're reminded over and over and over again that God is faithful. He's faithful to save. He's faithful to sanctify. He's going to be faithful to his promises. So friends, as we look at David's life and see his patience, I pray that we too will have the kind of patience that David had knowing that God is faithful. We can be patient because God is faithful. And I do want to just add one more thing briefly here by way of application. If if we're to wait patiently for God to fulfill his promises, how much more patiently ought we to wait for those good things that God hasn't promised? When God doesn't promise us health, He doesn't promise us wealth. He doesn't promise us prosperity, a nice house, a good job. He doesn't promise us a spouse or children or the salvation of our family and friends. Those are all good things. Every single one of them, a good gift from God that God gives to his people. It's not wrong to desire them. It's not wrong to pray for them. But friends, if we're finding it harder to wait for those good things that God doesn't promise, than it is for us to wait for the glorious things that he does promise, that ought to be a warning sign to us that we're holding too tightly to the things of this world and too loosely to the things of heaven. The things of this world are good. The things of heaven are glorious. The things of this world aren't promised. The things of heaven are. And we should be clinging far more tightly to those than we are to the things of this world. God is faithful to his promises. And because of that, just like David, we can be patient even as we long for their fulfillment. David was patient because God is faithful. That's point number one. Point number two, David was wise because God is kind. We see this in verses 6 through 12. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. And David said on that day, Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft and attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, The blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the millow inward. And David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. We'll stop there for now. David was wise. We we get to see David's wisdom on display in his choice of Jerusalem to be the capital city of Israel. So Jerusalem, first and foremost, was incredibly strongly fortified. The the Israelites knew how difficult it was to take the city because both the tribes of Judah and the tribes of Benjamin had tried at various times to take Jerusalem from the Jebusites. Both times they failed. They could not get past 
the strong walls of the city. And because of that, Jerusalem sat occupied by the Jebusites, even though it was dead smack in the middle of the promised land. God had promised his people that he was going to give them all the land, and yet the Jebusites sat there for years and years and years, and the Israelites couldn't drive them out. So David chooses Jerusalem to be his capital because he knows just how incredibly strong that place is. Second, he chooses Jerusalem to be his capital because he also recognizes that it sits just inside the border of Benjamin, the tribe of Saul, and just on the border of Judah, David's tribe. And so David picks this city that's perfectly located to bring unity to his people. He wants to communicate to the people of Israel what God said. He is going to be the shepherd of his people Israel, not just the shepherd of Judah, but the shepherd of all of Israel, that David cares not just for his own people, but he cares for the whole nation. And so David wisely chooses this capital city that's going to make that clear. The capital's not in his hometown. It's not in his homeland in terms of, of Judah, but rather it's in Benjamin, right, where these people had been hostile to him for years and years and years. David's holding out an olive branch in wisdom saying, I'm going to be your king and I'm not going to be a selfish king. I'm going to be the kind of shepherd that God calls me to be. So David is wise in his choice of Jerusalem. We also get to see David's wisdom on display again in the assault of Jerusalem. I just told you, the Israelites could not take Jerusalem. They tried and they tried and they could not do it. But finally, David is able to. It's just a fascinating story. You see the, the Jebusites up on the walls of the city saying to the Israelites, looking down, going, if we were blind and lame, you still couldn't get in here. Like, there's no chance, David. Go home. Just go home. Just like all your other Israelite relatives, go home. You're not coming in. But David, being the wise military mind that he was, thought to himself, you know what? There's got to be water somewhere. And wherever the water is, that's going to be the way in. And so we read David saying in verse 8, Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. So David finds the water source. He sends his men up through the water shaft, and they take the Jebusites by surprise. In their pride, the Jebusites had failed to guard the one point of weakness that they had, and it appears that their pride cost them not only the stronghold, but also any future audience with David, right? I think that's what the end of verse 8 means there. David is not saying that the blind and the lame, physically blind and lame, have no place in his house, but rather he's speaking of the Jebusites, using that language, blind and lame, to say, you're not coming into my presence, Right? And so that's, that's what is going on there. It's been misinterpreted um, for a long time, and I don't think it means what some people think it means. It's not literal. It's figurative language speaking specifically of the Jebusites. So David was wise. I mean, he proved to be an incredibly wise king politically, militarily. But again, behind David's wisdom and success was God. It was his kindness that allowed David 
to be the kind of king he was. It was God's kindness that gave wisdom to David. It was God's kindness that gave success to David. And, And why was God with David? Why was he so kind to David? Well, verse 12, the author tells us, And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom. Why? For the sake of his people, Israel. David was wise because God was kind. David was successful because God is kind. Because God cares for his people. He's compassionate towards his people. Right, if you, you know the story of First and Second Samuel, Israel wanted a king to go out and fight their battles. But what they needed was a wise shepherd, a wise ruler, a king who wouldn't only fight for Israel, but one who would sow peace in Israel, one who would show concern for the nation as a whole. And so God, in his kindness, provides David and prospers the nation through him. God gave Israel a wise shepherd, a successful shepherd, because God himself is the good shepherd, right? A kind shepherd that loves and cares for his sheep. Today we get to see the same kindness of God at work in the church, as, as God provides his people with wise and godly shepherds. Right? Godly elders are a kind gift from God to his people, one for which we should thank him. And I don't just say that because I'm one of your elders. Right? I personally am regularly thankful to God for the wise and godly shepherds that he's given this church. There are so many times that we get ready for an elders meeting. We get a packet sent out to us every week. And I I read through the memos, look at all the different things that are going on. And in my mind, I make a plan. This is what I think we should do. This is the direction I think we should go. This is how we should handle this problem or that problem. And then we come into a meeting and I sit down with 11 other brothers and start to hear what they have to say as we discuss these matters. Different insights that they have, different wisdom that they bring, and all of a sudden, I find myself walking out of that meeting going, man, I'm glad we didn't make the decision I thought we should make, because God has given these men incredible wisdom, and because of that, this church is safe, right, because it doesn't rest on the shoulders of Aaron or Dustin or Brad or Ben, but on the shoulders of all of these men with whom God has in his kindness endowed wisdom for the sake of Mount Vernon, not for our sake, but for the sake of the church. And, and to my fellow elders, and, and honestly to any men who one day would aspire to be an elder, brothers, may you never forget that the gifts and the wisdom that God has given you, he's given you for the sake of his people. If he blesses your ministry among the church, it's not because you're great, not because you're wise. No, it's because God is kind. God loves his people, and may that humble us. May it make us more faithful, kind, tender, loving shepherds of the flock. May it lead us to seek to use our gifts for the purpose that God intends and solely for that purpose, for the sake of his people, the church. Now, before we move on, I also want to just point out that, interestingly, when we move into the New Testament, we realize that God in his kindness has given every single Christian 
spiritual gifts that they're to use for the sake of his church. In 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 to 7, Paul says to the church, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So, brothers and sisters, what I've just said to the elders applies to all of you as well. First, we ought to thank God that He gifts men and women in the church with varieties of gifts for the sake of the body. That's his kindness. Whatever gift he's given to you is a manifestation of his kindness to Mount Vernon, if you're a member of Mount Vernon. And then second, we ought to use the gifts that God's given us humbly for the purpose for which he intends, right? Not to serve ourselves, but rather to serve one another. God has gifted all of us for the sake, not of ourselves, right? But rather for the sake of his people. David was wise because God is kind. Christian, God has given you gifts for the exact same reason, not for your sake, but because he's kind and he loves his people. David was wise because God is kind. That's point number two. Point number three, David was prayerful because God is sovereign. In verses 17 to 25, we have two accounts of two battles that in some ways are incredibly similar and in the end are actually incredibly different in the way that the victory is won. But there is something consistent in both pictures, and that's this phrase, David inquired of the Lord. You see it in verse 19. You see it in verse 23, David inquired of the Lord. So David's ascension to the throne of Israel drew the eye and the anger of the neighboring Philistines. And prior to Saul's death, David had fled to Philistia, lived there for about a year and a half, and had deceived the Philistines into thinking that he was an ally, that he'd actually turned against his own people. For a year and four, four months, almost a year and a half, he, he lived among them. 1 Samuel 27 tells us that, that he made raids against the surrounding nations, but he would tell the Philistines that he was raiding the villages in the wilderness of Israel, that he was attacking his own people. And so they trusted David. But, but now that David was anointed king over all Israel, the Philistines knew that they had been deceived. Right? David was now a significant threat they, they already knew that David was an able warrior, right? Everyone knew the story of David and Goliath, right? We think that it's just Christians that know that. Back then, in the ancient Near East, everybody knew that David killed Goliath, especially the Philistines, right? They knew David was an able warrior, and now, as, as king, he was just going to grow stronger and stronger. And so, they hurried to hunt him down and put him to death before he was able to, able to establish himself as king and to increase his military might. They track him down, find him in Jerusalem, and this massive army spreads out in the valley just southwest of the city. David is faced with this massive threat, and the question is, what's David going to do? And the author tells us, he prays. David inquired of the Lord. 
And David was incredibly wise. We just saw that. And yet in this moment of crisis, David doesn't trust in his own wisdom. Instead, he turns to the Lord and seeks his wisdom, his guidance. He inquires of the Lord, and the Lord answers him, guiding him, and ultimately giving him victory. So the Philistines lose the first battle, but that didn't deter them from coming back a second time. We don't know how much later this second battle occurred, but they return again to the same valley. They prepare a second time to attack Jerusalem, hoping to kill David. And given the similar circumstances, you would think, right, especially since they had already won one victory, that David would just run back out into battle the exact same way he did before, expecting that God was going to give them the victory again. But that's not what David does. We're told again in verse 23, David inquired of the Lord. And, And this time, the Lord gives them victory in a completely different manner than he did the first time. And, and it's just really interesting. I, notice, look at, look at verse 23 and just notice how matter-of-factly the author states this. And when, when David inquired of the Lord, the Lord said, don't go up around to the rear and come against, the, or don't go up, go around to the rear, come against them opposite the balsam trees, and when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him, and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. When David sought the Lord. Right? It wasn't a matter of if. It wasn't a question of if. It was a matter of, of when. Right? David sought the Lord. And because we don't know how long it was between these two battles, we can assume it probably was a little while. It appears that, that what the author is, is drawing our attention to is just the reality that David had developed over time a pattern of seeking the Lord in the midst of his troubles. I mean, go read the Psalms, right? How many prayers of David are there in the Psalms? It's so, so clear that David had a pattern of prayerfulness in the face of trouble. So much so that it wasn't a question of if, but a matter of when. He would pray and seek the Lord. And when David sought the Lord, the Lord answered, and the Lord gave David victory. He was prayerful. But David was prayerful for a reason. David was prayerful because he knew God is sovereign. David was Israel's king, and yet he knew that God was Israel's true king. More than that, he understood that the Lord was the sovereign ruler over not just Israel, but all the earth. And that meant that at the end of the day, these battles weren't ultimately David's battles to fight. Right? No, the battle belonged to the Lord. And notice who it is that gets the credit with the victory in both of these battles. In verse 20, it says, The Lord has broken through my enemies. Verse 24, the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And then notice, kind of hidden in the middle here in verse 21, after the first battle, what happened? The Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. First Chronicles tells us that they burned them. But the, the gods being left communicate something. Right? The Philistines 
left their idols and fled. Why? Because their gods couldn't save them. And this is a demonstration of the truth that their gods weren't sovereign, but the Lord is. He is the sovereign king, the sovereign ruler over all. And David knew that well. That's why before David went to war, David prayed. So what do we learn from from this? Well, I think the first thing that we learn is that our prayer lives tell us a whole lot about our view of God. Prayer is practical theology. If we don't pray much, it's likely that in our heart of hearts we don't think too much of the God, of the God to whom we pray, right? If we, we truly believe that God is sovereign over all, we ought to have a pattern of prayer like David. We ought to be praying all the time for things big, things small, for guidance, for wisdom, for help, for hope, for joy, for comfort, for everything. You know, for the last number of weeks, as, as Aaron's led us through 1 John, I've just been reminded that the Christian life is a war. Every single day, the world, the flesh, and the devil are arrayed against us. And they are far more cunning and far more deadly and far more powerful than any Philistine army. Every single day, they're waging war against our souls. And yet, far too often, I know I step out onto the battlefield relying on myself, acting as if I were sovereign instead of prayerfully relying on the Lord who's sovereign over all. That's pride. Just, just, just think about it for a moment. If you knew that there was a war going on, and you heard a story about a soldier who, when the battle started, decided to run as fast as he could into the battle unarmed, even though he knew that in his pocket were the keys to a howitzer tank. What would you think of that soldier? You'd think he was pretty dumb, right? (laughs) But that that picture is not too far off from, from what we do over and over again when we don't go to the Lord and pray and we walk out into the war that is the Christian life unarmed. Right? We've got something far stronger and far more powerful than a tank. Right? We, we worship a God who rules the universe, who reigns over all things, who reigns over the world, the flesh, and the devil. And that, brothers and sisters, ought to lead us to pray, to cry out to him constantly in the midst of battle, knowing that he promises to answer us when we call, to help us in the battle because the battle is his Ultimately, it's not ours. So, brothers and sisters, I I hope that you'll join me in laboring to pray like God is sovereign. David was prayerful because he knew that. He knew that God was sovereign. And if we're convinced that God is sovereign, we're going to be prayerful people too. David prayed. David was prayerful because God is sovereign. That's point number three. Finally, though, point number four, David was a sinner, but God is gracious. So, about a week ago, we had some trees removed from our backyard. They were close to the house. 
there were, were two of them. One was kind of a double tree, and the other one was just a single tree. The double tree was rotten. You could look at it. You could see there was a hole in the bottom that the rot went about 15 foot up, and it was just a matter of time before that thing fell on our house. And so we, we got it cut out. There was another one that was, that was close to the house. It was healthy. It looked fine. And we just thought, you know, it's close to the house. We should go ahead and get it removed. Well, as the, the day went on and the, the tree cutters were out there cutting down the trees, they cut down the big one that was rotten, and you could just see, oh, my goodness, like, I'm surprised this thing didn't fall yet. They get to the second tree that looks healthy. And as they cut down into the, the trunk of it, we see this huge rot hole. Not as big as the other one, but it was there, right? And it was only gonna be a matter of time as well before that tree fell. It wasn't as obvious that, that it was rotten, but it was rotten still the same. Well, when we read First and Second Samuel, Saul is a whole lot like that first big tree. Like you could see the rot. You could see the problems over and over again with Saul. You could see his pride. You could see his fear. You could see his disobedience. It was obvious that that tree was going to fall. David is a whole lot more like that other tree that looks really, really healthy on the outside, and yet on the inside, there's rot. And that's because David, David was a sinner. He was a good king. He was a humble king, but he wasn't a perfect king. And I think the author of 2 Samuel wants us to see that in verses 13 through 16. So I skipped over these as we've been walking through, but let's go back to verse 13. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron. And more sons and daughters were born to David. And these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphalet. You didn't think I was going to read that twice, did you? <laughs> All right, so, so right here, just sitting in the middle of the chapter, right, sandwiched between the Lord's establishment of God is, or David is king and the Lord's granting victory over him, right? And think about that tree. You've got, you've got this beautiful, healthy-looking outside Right in the middle, we find these verses. And notice what's missing in this paragraph, at least if, if you've got an ESV, in this paragraph that's present in every other paragraph in this chapter. It's the name of the Lord. It's not there. And I, I think that's intentional. Right, all the way back in Deuteronomy 17, long, long before Israel ever had a king, before they'd entered into the promised land, God put in place specific laws that were intended to govern Israel's kings. Right, so, so keep a finger for just a moment in, Deuteronomy, or in 2 Samuel 5, flip over to Deuteronomy 17. Look at verse 14. Okay, so keep in mind what we just read. David took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem. And listen to what God says of Israel's kings in Deuteronomy 17, 14. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose, one from among your brothers who shall, you shall set as king over you. 
You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother, only he must not acquire many horses for himself, for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And, verse 17, he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. He shall not acquire many wives for himself. Right? Those are the words of God that are intended to come to mind as we read verses 13, 14, 15, and 16. David already had multiple wives at this point. He had already violated God's command, and now as king, he takes even more wives and concubines, explicitly disobeying the Lord's command. Right, and the author of 2 Samuel doesn't comment on this point, which is interesting. He just lays out the facts to us. And so we do have to ask the question, should we interpret the author's silence as approval? His approval, even God's approval of what David is doing? The answer is no. Right? The author's primary point in this passage is to piece together a collage that provides us with a picture of the whole of David's reign as king. Right? On the whole, his reign was marked by faithfulness to the Lord. Right? It was a good tree. But David was a sinner. And the author is laboring to make that point. At the same time, he doesn't, he doesn't want us to miss the fact, even though he's extolling David, that, that David was a sinner. He was a king who gave in to his lusts. He was a king who at times failed to trust God. And that's what we see in these verses. Right? David gave in to the lusts of the flesh. That word concubine there in verse 13 is not a word that we use today, praise God. Concubines were, were female servants. They were slaves taken into someone's house for the purpose of pleasure and procreation. Right? Not a pretty picture. The name Solomon, there in verse 14, also immediately brings to mind David's sexual sin with Solomon's mother, Bathsheba. Right? David at times allowed himself to be ruled by his lusts, his sinful desires. And David also gave in to his fears at times and failed to trust God. Right? Kings typically married additional wives in order to secure political alliances. A political rival was not likely to turn against you, right? The, the, the king of Tyre is not going to come to war if you're married to his daughter. It's just not going to happen. And David knew that. So multiple wives were a, a worldly means of protecting your kingdom. They were evidence that David didn't fully trust God to protect his throne or his people. And because we know the rest of David's story, we know that both his lust... And his lack of complete trust in God had devastating consequences, both for his family and for the nation as a whole. Right? David's lust led to the murder of Uriah, to the death of David's infant son, and to a deadly conflict in his own household that led to the death of more sons. His lack of trust in the Lord to protect the kingdom led David to take a census that resulted in the death of 70,000 Israelites. 
right? All of that deadly devastation and fallout from David's sin is foreshadowed in the words, and David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem. David was a good king, but we, we cannot miss the fact that David was a great sinner. And so we have to ask the question, how could such a great sinner still be such a good king? Well, the answer, of course, is God's grace. Right? David was a sinner, but God is gracious. But then that leads to another question, doesn't it? How on earth could God be gracious to David? The answer to that question is found in the gospel. Right, in the person and work of David's greater son, Jesus Christ. And David was a sinner, yes, but David had a greater savior. David found forgiveness and grace in the gospel. Wasn't in its fullest form, but in the promise of a son who would sit on his throne forever. And as we've seen throughout this, this chapter, David's life wasn't ultimately about David. Right, it was about God and the work that he did in and through David to shepherd his people. But even more than that, David's life was all about Jesus. Right? David was a shadow pointing us to Christ. God raised up David to be king so that one day, hundreds of years later, he might send his son in the world, into the world to be the king that David could never be. Right? David was a good king, but God knew that Israel, that the world, that we needed a greater one. We needed a king who was not only patient and wise and prayerful, but one who was also faithful, kind, sovereign, gracious, sinless. Right? We needed a perfect king. And so in the fullness of time, God sent his son Jesus Christ into the world, born of the tribe of Judah, into the house of David, to sit on David's throne forever, to be the shepherd and the prince that David could never be to be the king that would trust God completely, to be the king that would live a life of perfect purity, resisting the temptations of lust <clears throat> and power, to be a king who would shepherd his people, laying down his life, taking upon himself the judgment of God for their sin, rising from the dead three days later so that they, like David, might know the forgiveness, the mercy, and the grace of God that come only through faith in him. If you're here this morning and you've never put your faith in Christ, I, I wonder, who are you putting your faith in? Right, we're all putting our faith in someone. Every human hero is going to fail you, whether they be a president or a celebrity. Every single one of us has clay feet, and that's because every single one of us is a sinner just like David. And maybe you're putting your faith in yourself. I think this is the most common thing that we tend to do. Thinking that somehow when you stand before the Lord on the last day, that your story is not going to have a paragraph in it like David's. That, that somehow God's going to look at you and overlook everything that you've done, every sin that you've committed. Well, the reality is, is that your story is not just got one paragraph like that. It's got lots and lots and lots of paragraphs like that. All of ours do. And there's nothing that we can do, that you can do or that I can do to erase those paragraphs. We are sinners, every single one of us. 
And one day, sooner than we think, we're going to stand before God and our stories are going to be read aloud. And if you're trusting in yourself on that day, there is going to be no grace, but only eternal judgment. But, and this is the wonderful news of the gospel, but if you are trusting in Christ on that day, your story is going to be passed over because God is going to read the story of Christ in your place. If you're trusting in Christ and not in yourself on that last day when those stories are read, it's not going to matter what your story says. It's going to matter that your name is written in the King's Book of Life. And if it is, then you're going to be ushered into the joy of God's perfect presence, into his perfect kingdom for all eternity. So friends, what are you, who are you putting your trust in? If you're putting your trust in anyone other than Jesus Christ, the call to you today is to repent, to turn from your sins, and put your hope, your trust, your faith in the one and only king and shepherd who can truly and eternally save. If you would like to talk more with me about that, I would love to talk to you about it. I would encourage you to talk to someone, to talk to the person who brought you. Um, find someone here. I'll, there are a lot of people in this room who love Jesus and who would love to talk with you about what it means for him to be your king. Behind every great man or woman of the faith stands an even greater and an incredibly gracious God. And David was a good king. He was a faithful king. He was a faithful shepherd. His patience, his wisdom, his prayerfulness, they're worthy of our imitation. But David was also a sinner. And we must never, ever, ever, ever forget the fact that David's success, that our success, it wasn't his own doing. David was a good king because of the grace and mercy of God. He was a patient king because God is faithful. He was a wise king because God is kind. He was a prayerful king because God is sovereign. And he was a saved sinner because of God's grace. When we look at David, we aren't meant to marvel at David. We're meant to marvel at the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Not just in David's life, but also in ours. Because that's, when we look at, that's because when we look at David, God intends us to look beyond David to see David's greater son, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of God, the perfect and forever king. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this picture of David's life. We thank you for the fact that David was a wise and a patient and a prayerful king. We thank you that in him we see shadows of Jesus. But more than anything, we thank you that that in him, in his sinfulness, we're not just seeing shadows, we're driven to Jesus Christ, reminded of our own sinfulness and our own desperate need of a Savior. Father, we pray that we would be more like David, but more than anything, we pray that we would be like David in trusting in Christ for our salvation. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.